Today's episode is brought to you by T-Mobile. This season, T-Mobile customers can get a free season-long subscription to MLB.tv Premium. Sign up by April 10th at T-Mobile.com slash MLB. Sign up for MLB TV while on T-Mobile's network. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Our guest this week is the most acclaimed historical documentary filmmaker we have. He did the Civil War, baseball, jazz, the Central Park Five, and just two years ago, the Roosevelts. And now, his latest, four hours over two nights, debuting on April 11th on PBS. It's called Jackie Robinson. The filmmaker's name is Ken Burns. If I had a room jammed with trophies, awards, and citations, and a child of mine came into that room and asked what I had done in defense of black people and decent whites fighting for freedom, and if I had to tell that child I had kept quiet, that I had been timid, I would have to mark myself a total failure in the whole business of living. Jackie Robinson. So you were born in Brooklyn in 1953. What did you hear about Jackie Robinson growing up? I was actually physically born in Brooklyn at Kings County Hospital. My parents lived on the Upper West Side. My mom worked at Kings County Hospital in the laboratory. She was a biologist. And so I grew up learning about Brooklyn and hearing about Jackie Robinson and the horrible move to L.A. and all of that sort of stuff. And I'd always been a baseball fan all my life. And when I made in 1994, after five years of work, the 18-and-a-half-hour series on baseball, the Jackie story was a central part of the story. And in fact, we followed two teams, one in the American League, the Red Sox, and one in the National League, the, the Dodgers, as a way, as touchstones throughout all of the eras of baseball. So it's been in my blood. What I was so happy to do with this case in the standalone with Sarah Burns and David McMahon, and by the way, they are equal co-directors and co-producers of this film with me and deserve equal credit. We realized in this deeper dive that we could sort of escape some of the mythology that I think has weighted Jackie down. Mm-hmm. You know, the Pee Wee Reese mythology is, of course, the most obvious thing. But so many other things, the idea of the centrality of Branch Rickey, that Jackie was the only person, Branch was God, Jackie was his son, he reached down like the Michelangelo painting and touched him and everything changed, that we we focus only, as so many stories of Jackie do, only on that first year when he turns the other cheek and not on the times when he was released and find out the personality of this person who who was a competitive, feisty guy who was did not want to accept second-class citizenship, how hard it would be for him to turn the other cheek. Uh, and then, of course, the post-baseball career in which almost no one knows and understands the intricacies. But I feel that once you permit Jackie to escape the specific gravity of that mythology and make him a dimensional character, he's more interesting and more inspiring, and he helps us understand today because what was he dealing with? The same thing we, you know, Confederate flag, driving while black, stop and frisk, Black Lives Matter, burn black churches. You know, Jackie becomes a not only inspirational, but a serviceable agent for how we try to digest the current 
conversation about race. I mean, he was there at the moment in 60 and 64 when the two parties pivoted the Southern white vote. Right. And that's a huge moment in American history, and he witnessed it firsthand. Initially, as a classic Republican, African-American, party of Lincoln, party of anti-slavery, as campaigning for Richard Nixon, disappointed that he won't campaign in Harlem, and outraged that he won't intercede on behalf of Martin Luther King, who's going to be sent on a chain gang, so he votes for Kennedy. And then four years later, he's back with a liberal, moderate Republican, Nelson Rockefeller, and is being steamrolled by the Goldwater people who are cynically understanding that the same year that the Civil Rights Act passed, we can go, as, as Goldwater himself said, hunting where the ducks are, right. meaning we can go pick off those people. And then the Republican Party made a pact with the devil, of which they are still paying for, from Ronald Reagan beginning his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, saying I'm for states' rights, through Willie Horton, through now Donald Trump taking a couple days, wink, wink, to disavow David Duke and white supremacy and the Ku Klux Klan. Jackie can now speak to that in a clear voice. And because it's in the past, it gives us a kind of perspective that the heated conversation we have right now we sometimes find it impossible to have. You know, history's, what I'm trying to say is history's a table around which we can still have a civil discourse. And I'd like to, I know that Sarah and Dave, Sarah Burns and David McMahon would like to add his voice to this ongoing conversation of race, which has heated up in the recent years since probably Trayvon Martin. Right. And, and I think I would make the case that Jackie Robinson is in a lot of ways the best lens for understanding the switching of the Democratic and Republican parties and their base. But just to tell the Jackie story, to tell the story of him walking into the 60 Democratic convention and seeing Orville Faubus and walking out, to tell the story of him being at the Republican convention in 64 and saying, feeling, saying he felt like he was in a, a meeting in Germany in the 30s when Goldwater spoke. It and and, tells and you, us know, you had the, out of out of thirteen hundred some delegates, you know, fifteen were black, and one had his credentials revoked. Another had cigarettes put out of him, on him by Goldwater supporters. There was an angry Alabama delegate who wanted to get into a fight with Jackie, and Jackie was ready to do it. And fortunately, the the delegate's wife held him back, and it didn't happen. These are amazing, amazing circumstances, and we can watch firsthand not only the history of the larger American political story, but the dynamics and the con tours of a developing and always changing African-American movement of which Jackie led, you know, when he came up in 1947, Martin Luther King was a junior at Morehouse College. Harry Truman hadn't integrated the military. There'd been no organized sit-ins at lunch counters. Brown versus Board of Education hadn't happened. Rosa Parks is a decade away from refusing to give up her seat something Jackie had done in 44 at uh, Fort Hood and got court-martialed for it. So you begin to understand he is, as we say in the introduction, as Dr. King said, a sit-in or before sit-ins, a freedom rider before freedom rides, that then we can understand that by the time he's, you know, the late 60s, he's being accused of being an Uncle Tom and Rockefeller's house because he has not subscribed to the violence, the more militant wing of the African-American movement, uh, civil rights movement, has sort of uh, embraced. And yet in 1968, when Jesse Owens condemns people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos for wanting to boycott the Olympics in Mexico City, Jackie Robinson is sympathetic towards them and says, and, and so how do we understand that? 
Well, this is, this is what we do. Well, let's just go back to the earlier thing. The reason why we always, and the we being the larger, white-dominated, superficial media culture, we focus on the, the years when he turns the other cheek because, you know what? Oh, shoot, that's the way we like our Negroes, right? Mm. Right? Forbearing, right? Tolerant, you know? And it's messier if you find out who it was that got up to that moment. And afterwards, when he was released from that, starting in the 49th season, he was now an uppity you-know-what, mm-hmm. you know? So what happens is we've got to say these are dimensional characters and that the African-American civil rights movement is a dimensional movement. So it's got eddies. It's possible for Jackie Robinson to get involved in a fight of words with Malcolm X, but also admire some of Malcolm X's slogans. It's possible for him to be relegated uh, in some people's eyes as an Uncle Tom, but he's telling the NAACP, you've got to promote more younger people. You can't become calcified, you know, so... What you have is what we have in life, you know. We always lament in this superficial media culture that there are no heroes, but that presupposes that a hero is perfect. And what the Greeks have told us for millennia is that a hero isn't perfect. It's the negotiation between that person's strengths and their weaknesses. And sometimes it's not a negotiation. It's a war that defines heroism. It's defined by the conflict. Mm. And Jackie Robinson passes muster with flying colors. He is a true, authentic hero because he is complex, because there is undertow, because there is dynamics and dimension to him. He's much more inspiring and much more interesting. It's very difficult for me to hear your words and not hear it as a critique of something about a movie that I was very critical of, and that's 42. So I have to ask you what your thoughts were about 42. Yeah. Well, I, I went into 42 assuming the worst. And I was actually pleasantly surprised. But at the same time, we had already, we were well underway, Sarah and Dave and I, on this film. And so we had already begun to understand the reductionism by focusing only on that period Mm -hmm. and by continuing to promote things that were in my 94 series, you know, which was the Pee Wee Reese thing, that that didn't happen. That's all new stuff. And we could verify that now. They're simplistic tropes that get passed along. And I think what our film is able to do is actually smash the smithereens. I mean, you don't want your heroes standing out in a park collecting pigeon just statues, you know, that are inanimate and one-dimensional. And so I think what's so great is that you get to know from the moment Jackie Robinson is throwing, as a little boy, throwing rocks back at the people who are hurling epithets at him across the street, and he's hurling them back, and they're throwing rocks at him, and he's throwing the rocks back, you've got a character that doesn't fit the mold of this good, in quotes, Negro that everybody recognized in 47. And, And as the president says in the film, he'd earned the right to speak his mind by putting up with all that. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, one, one of the things that upset me about 42 was, and something you talk about this in the film, is it presented this image of him as this person who was so uniquely talented, so brilliant, who took all of this on himself and showed a path for progress in that way, which is really counterposed to kind of a movement model. And he always spoke all the time. You said, no one has it made unless we all have it made. I'm more interested in how the mass is doing. That's the key. You hit it. You hit it right there. That is the whole key to the whole film. That, you know, this goes back. This is a great African-American tradition, the talented tenth. Right. You know, that as African-Americans rise up into a, uh, you know, a vibrant middle and upper class, it is important to turn around and, and offer a hand to those who didn't make it. And so today, I would rather not make the movie 42 wrong 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, to me, that doesn't matter. I'd rather talk about why Michael Jordan has not acted and say LeBron James has wearing a hoodie in solidarity with Trayvon Martin. You know, apparently when amputees lose a limb, they feel the pain and itching of those limbs. Where the hell is Trayvon Martin? I was 12 years old or fit, however old he was, 15 years old, and I would wear a hooded sweatshirt and nobody shot me. And I played with plastic guns when I was 12 years old. And where is Tamir Rice? Right. That's the conversation. I don't need to go back and make a problem or pick a bone with 42. I know where that comes from. But I think we have more pressing problems right now when a candidate, the leading candidate for president of the United States in one party takes two days, wink, wink, to not disavow David Duke, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, you know, and that goes right back to those, the Goldwater calculus. Let's go hunt where the ducks are. Right, exactly. You know, and, 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 and Republicans who are surprised are crying wolf. Ronald Reagan opened his campaign in 1980 in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Yes, that is the area where the three... Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodwin were murdered, but he began it by saying, I'm for states' rights. Right. That was a wink-wink, just like the Willie Horton ad, just like everything else. So what – you know – you cannot be surprised if you were in Dr. Frankenstein's lab that suddenly you've created a monster. And Jackie Robinson is witness to the opposite of that. He is the, he is the apostle of our better selves. He is the apostle of the better angels of our nature. I agree with that. And, but one of the, those complicated moments in his history that, to your great credit, the film susses through and I think yep. makes very three-dimensional is Jackie Robinson testifying against Paul Robeson. Yeah. Rather than asking you to rehash the incident, people should watch the film. I want to ask you yeah. what it says about Paul Robeson that he refused to condemn Jackie Robinson for testifying when he actually probably would have had quite an audience, particularly in the black press, for doing Doing so. As Howard brought well because he understood that this was a uh, centuries-old trick, as playing one black man off of the other, and it, it shows Robeson's greatness that he that he didn't take the bait. But you also have to look at Jackie. It is a misstep by Jackie, and you can understand the circumstances. Branch Rickey is a fervent anti-communist and sort of pressures him into doing it. But what does his statement say? If Paul Robeson actually said that, I find it rather silly, but why aren't you asking me about the standings of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the raise I'm going to ask from Mr. Rickey? So what happens is that Robinson, somewhere along the line, suddenly realizes that he's being used in a classic way and does his best to rectify a bad situation. I'm not apologizing for Jackie. In fact, that's a classic misstep, as uh, Howard Bryant says, but... I just find it more nuanced and complicated, and that's the thing. Everything we do in a media culture is oppositional. It's either good or bad. And what we know from our own relationships is that nothing's like that. It is all shades of gray. And so what you have in Jackie, the, the apprehension, and I would suggest thereafter the appreciation of his heroism, is due in large measure to making him human and not making him a children's book perfect you know, fantasy. And mm-hmm. he's not. And I like that person for the missteps as well as for all all of the great heroism and courage that he showed every step of the way. And look, this is existential. You and I participate in a media culture in which we talk the talk endlessly. He walked the walk. He got up every day and said, I don't have it made, living in a comfortable house in Fairfield, Connecticut, making lots of money. I don't have it made until the lowliest African-American anywhere has it made. And that... That's fantastic. 
Do you wish you could catch every Major League Baseball game? Like me, do you live miles from the team of your youth, the team of your family, the team whose colors you bleed? Go Mets. Now you can. Only T-Mobile customers get a free year-long MLB.tv premium subscription, $109.99 value for free, so they'll never miss a game. Hurry and sign up by April 10th to catch any out-of-market games all season long. Go Mets. That's 2,430 games and over 7,000 hours of baseball that will never touch your data plan this season. Thanks to Binge On, only from T-Mobile, you can stream your favorite team's games without using any of your data, because T-Mobile has you covered, unlike those other guys. So get your free MLB.tv premium subscription by April 10th and catch every moment all season long. Switch to the Uncarrier today. Already a T-Mobile customer? Well, you can sign up at T-Mobile.com slash MLB. Sign up for MLB.tv while on T-Mobile's network. New MLB.tv premium subscribers only. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details. Binge on available to T-Mobile customers with qualifying plan. Detectable video typically streams at DVD quality. Video from participating services don't count against full speed data on their U.S. network. Third-party subscription charges may apply. Go Mets. President Obama, Michelle Obama, they they speak a great deal in the film. Of course, anyone would understand why you had them be commentators. I mean, President of the United States, first black president, someone with an eye on sports, couldn't be more appropriate. And of course, if he asked to speak, you put him on camera. Did any part of you have pause for doing that, given the fact that what Jackie faced compared to what President Obama faced in terms of power, in terms of who backed them, in terms of who didn't? could set up not a false narrative, but a difficult narrative to stomach historically as if Barack Obama is the Robinson. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm trying to ask? Of course I do. Of course I do. And it's an excellent question. And the simple answer is no. But I have been getting hate mail since I started making films because I'm a white person who deals with race. And I even have among friends and people in your profession who's criticized me for making things race-centric. And so when Obama was elected and inaugurated, people would say to me, now will you shut up, basically? Right? Friends. Mm -hmm. Right? And I held up the copy of The Onion magazine, which said, yeah, has black man <laughs> given worst job in world, right? Right. And, and now those people have come to me, to their credit, and apologized since Trayvon Martin saying, you're right, race is central. So I went to this president and said, I need you to talk about it because you were the first to go through this door. He was the first to go through that door. I didn't say that to him. He just agreed. And then we were surprised at how much they were able to translate it not just within a political, social, racial dynamic, but into a personal one. You know, when a president of the United States who says, when, when you come home, having you question just because it's you doing the action, and somebody loves you and has your back, and you're talking about how smart Jackie was to pick Rachel, you realize that these two couples hurtling through different spaces and time are related in their color and in their struggle. And that, sure, there's many different variations on it. He flies in Air Force One and is the most powerful person in the world, but he also can't get a lot of his agenda done simply because he's black. Not because it isn't a good agenda, not because he's not interested in compromise, but because he's black. Black man given worst job in the world, and that's Jackie's story too. 
just want to say publicly, Rachel Robinson was the star of this film for me. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's so clear it happened organically, too. She was so yeah. beautiful. And she, she, asked me, she asked me to do it, and I didn't have the time. And then Sarah Burns and David McMahon and I finished the Central Park Five, and I said, oh, Rachel, we can do it when this film is done. And she not only gave the, you know, the access to the archives, but much more generously of the intimacy oh. of not just the triumph, but the tragedy. Can you imagine? She's asking me to make a film film, which I have to make completely independent of her, in which I get to wake up her husband and her son and then kill them both in the last 15 minutes of the film. That's too much. It, it's almost unbearable. And, but it gets to my... Unbearable. It, and, unbearable. And I, I tweeted today, I wish she was running for president. But um, the, oh. it gets to my last question for you, because you did the Central Park Five documentary, Wrongly yeah. Accused Young Black Men. I grew up in New York City, Central Park Five. That was like my childhood. And so Donald Trump, I have to ask you this. What did you learn about yeah. Donald Trump? Because for a lot of folks, they're like, oh, this is just an act. He's not really racist. And I'm thinking, no. like, I remember 30 no, years out, ago, he was a racist. We put that in our film. He took out full-page ads saying, bring back the death penalty, and he meant it for these 14, innocent 14, 15, and developmentally challenged 16-year-olds. Unbelievable. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Disqualifying act for anybody who wants to be president. Would you agree with that of statement? Of course it is. Of course. Excellent. I, 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 just, I just think this is, this, is, this is an abomination, and the Republican Party should fall on its sword, disavow him, say, hey, we were founded in Ripon, Wisconsin, uh, in a tiny little schoolhouse in 1854, whose principal idea was that we were against slavery. And now the guy who's leading this race takes a couple of days to disavow David Duke and that. They should kick him out and fall on their sword. They'll lose the election, but they'll save the soul of their party. Ken Burns, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ken Burns. Thank you so much to Sarah Burns, to David McMahon for making this tremendous documentary, Jackie Robinson, debuting on April 11th on PBS. You do not want to miss it. You can find a link to the website at PBS in the description for this podcast that has all kinds of extras relating to the Jackie Robinson documentary. And now it's time for a section of the show we call Choice Words, where I usually read a column that I've written and add a couple of extemporaneous comments. This week it's a little bit different. I'm going to largely speak extemporaneously, although there is a column that forms the basis for what I'm about to say, and there will be a link to it in the description of this podcast. This column is something I wrote in 2010, following the death of a gentleman by the name of Lester Red Rodney, who passed away at the age of 94. And he was an amazing person. He was the crusading sports editor of The Daily Worker in the 1930s. And Lester Rodney played a big role in building movements in the late 30s and 1940s that presaged Jackie Robinson's entry into Major League Baseball. Lester Rodney is written out of many of the histories of baseball's integration, and Ken Burns in the Jackie Robinson documentary has a little section about Lester, and it's fantastic considering how often Lester is forgotten to this story. But I was able to meet and know Lester. He lived to be in his 90s. I sat down with him, heard tons of stories about the way he used his sports page in The Daily Worker to try to integrate baseball, and I want to speak about him today. Because Lester was one of the first people 
to write about Jackie Robinson. He was the last living journalist to cover the famous 1938 fight at Yankee Stadium between Joe Lewis and the Hitler favorite Max Schmeling. He crusaded against baseball's color line when almost every other journalist pretended it didn't exist. He edited a political sports page that engaged his audience in how to fight for a more just sports world. His writing, which could describe the beauty of a well-turned double play in one sentence and blast injustice in the next, is still bracing and ahead of its time. He should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Instead, he's been largely erased from the books. Now, if you've never heard of Lester Rodney, there's a very simple reason why. Because the Daily Worker, where he was the sports editor from 1936 to 1958, was the party press of the U.S. Communist Party. Now, when I spoke to Lester about this in 2004, he said to me, You know, back when I was coming of age in the 1930s in the Depression, you were either a communist, a Trotskyist, some kind of socialist, or you were brain dead. There was really no other way to think in New York City at that time. Now, I got to tell you, talking to Lester, the other thing about it that was so amazing is that you learn that Jackie Robinson, like Ken Burns talks about in this documentary on PBS next week, you learn that Jackie Robinson was not just this talented individual. There was a context. There was a movement to integrate baseball, and Lester Rodney was at the heart of it. I'll never forget when I was asking Lester about all his questions about the demonstrations that he would organize, speaking about ending Jim Crow in baseball and the petitioning that they would do in front of Yankee Stadium and Wrigley Field and the ways in which they very theatrically delivered petitions to the desk of the racist MLB commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. I mean, it was, it was also like a media production ahead of its time. They knew what they were doing. When there would be open tryouts at Yankee Stadium for ballplayers, something they periodically did for PR purposes, Lester Rodney would show up with black ball players from New York City and be like, hey, if it's open, why not give these guys a tryout? And it wasn't that the black ball players were just statues or props in this. They were also members of radical organizations like the African Black Brotherhood, and they would stand with Lester to actually push to integrate Major League Baseball. They handed out flyers that had pictures of dead U.S. soldiers who were of African descent, and the flyers said, why is it that this person is good enough to stop bullets but not good enough to stop baseballs? It was powerful, political, and very media-savvy work, and Lester Rodney was at the heart of it, and I am absolutely thrilled that he is mentioned in Ken Burns' documentary. But I also want to remember Lester the person because he was the kindest, most open person who I've ever really had the privilege to meet. He passed away in 2010, and I'll never forget sitting down with him in his little office, in his little retirement community place in Oakland, and him looking at me and saying, why do you even care about these stories? You know, this is all from a long time ago. And I said, no, I think these stories really matter. I think they matter to a new generation that's trying to figure out how change is made. And I want to go all around the country and tell people your stories, Mr. Rodney. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, ah, to be 80 again. That was Lester. Man, he was all heart. He was a great guy. He left the Communist Party in 1958 when the actual revelations of Stalin's crimes became known. But he never stopped believing in the fight for a better world. He never gave that up. As he said to me, he said, you know, Stalin was the problem, not socialism. Because he believed in his heart of hearts that there is never a bad time to fight for a more just society. And that meant championing the cause of Jackie Robinson 
before he even knew Jackie Robinson's name. And now the Just Stand Up Award. This is the moment in every week's show where we say, Just Stand Up! and give our figurative award to somebody in the sports world who is using their hyper-exalted, brought to you by Nike platform, to actually say something about the world in which they live. There has never been an easier choice for the Just Stand Up Award than this week, as we give it with great humility to the U.S. women's national soccer team for actually filing a lawsuit with the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It was an unusual, aggressive, bold, and very courageous step by a group of powerful women, champion women, who had decided that waiting for equal pay is a recipe for never getting equal pay. Now, the women whose names have been in the news are Hope Solo, Carly Lloyd, Becky Sauerbrunn, Alex Morgan, and Megan Rapino. In other words, five of the most prominent women soccer players on earth yet they were actually the elected representatives of the whole team in filing this suit. And it's not difficult to see why they're filing this. They have won multiple Olympics, multiple World Cups. The World Cup final in 2015 drew 25.4 million viewers in the United States. That's the most viewers for any soccer game ever in the United States male or female. In February 2016, USA Soccer found out that they had a bump in profits of $20 million. And the reaction by USA Soccer was so disingenuous. They were like, my word, where did this money come from? As if it wasn't entirely attributable to the incredible 2015 campaign. So this isn't only a case where they're asking for equal rights. This is a case where they are demanding the treatment that they deserve, the compensation that they deserve. Think about who is responsible for making those cash registers turn. Think about who's responsible for generating that kind of a wealth. These are the U.S. women, not the U.S. men. And you know what? The men realize it too, that look at the difference in responses between someone like Novak Djokovic of the tennis world to the question of equal pay for men and women and Tim Howard, the goalie for U.S. men's soccer. Djokovic is basically like saying, hey, should they have equal pay? Who knows? Maybe they get so emotional. But maybe we, yeah, he said some ridiculous comment. Uh, and then compare that, though, to, to Howard. He's like, yeah, they're champions. They should get whatever they can get. And I'll tell you something, too. It is so disingenuous for USA Soccer to say, well, let them just wait till the next collective bargaining agreement. And I want to say why that's so incredibly disingenuous. First of all, USA Soccer actually filed a lawsuit against the U.S. women because they wanted to put a resolution in their next series of contract demands calling for equal pay. A lawsuit against what was a negotiating position in their contracts. That's really the equivalent of trying to kill a mouse in your house with a rocket-propelled grenade. It was overkill to the nth degree, and it was aggressive. If you're a member of the U.S. women's team, what do you say to that? Wow, they're bringing a lawsuit against us just for approaching the question of equal pay. The second reason why it's disingenuous is, let's be honest, athletic careers are not long, and the more we learn about issues like concussions, which in soccer is a huge deal, much less discussed than the National Football League, they're not getting any longer. So this idea of saying just wait till the next collective bargaining agreement is also sort of code till just wait until the next generation of players come in. And there's no reason why this group of champions 
should have to wait. They feel the fierce urgency of now. We should stand with them with all solidarity. And that's absolutely why the Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the women of USA Soccer. So thank you for listening to the Edge of Sports podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports. You can send us email. I read every single one. Send it to edgeofsports at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. Last week we had a tremendous show with Don Cheadle and Bobito Garcia talking about the twin towering legacies of Miles Davis and Fife Dog from Tribe Called Quest. Please listen to that. It also includes at the 27 minute mark a remarkable hip-hop history courtesy of our producer dan bloom listen to that it gave bobito garcia chills which really says something so 27 minutes to 37 minutes last week's show trust me you don't want to miss it edge of sports is produced by the aforementioned dan bloom for the panoply network our intern is dustin foot we are out of here peace <laughs>